Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to season three of the Movement Logic podcast. I'm Laurel Beversdorf, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Sarah Court, DPT. We are still in LA. We are. No, I did not move here. We have batch recorded most of the episodes of this season. I would love it if Laurel decided to move here. So if there's anyone out there that feels like they know Laurel enough that they could shoot her like an email or some compelling video footage of why she and her family should move here... I think we would all benefit, and uh, we need to get on that. You're really going to need to convince my husband, mostly. Mm. <laughs> all right. That might be challenging. Okay. Fair good enough. Luck with, good luck with that. Fair enough. <laughs> we have been on a kick where we're reading reviews that people have generously left for us. This one is particularly generous, as yes. we've discussed. Sarah, so <laughs> this one is from Liz9. Sorry, how many, how many Zs is that? Uh, one, two, three, four Zs. And then Liz nine. I don't think it's as long of a Liz nine. Is that what you sound like when you're starting your motorcycle? No, that's like that person has not left us a review yet. Okay, five stars. Thank you. She or he or they write an awesome resource for any kind of movement teacher or person who's interested in maximizing benefits for their movement to the point, coherent, they don't meander off topic, and it's digestible. See, see what I mean by generous? That was I mean, super generous. I would say all of those things are true except for the part where it says they don't meander off topic because that part is not that is very that's what we do that's our like that's basically that's all our we bread do. and butter yeah. me- meandering <laughs> off topic is what we're known for but i think we do make coherent points and i do think it's digestible yes agree and there's a, always a little sprinkle of humor in there to keep it light 100% not taking ourselves too seriously oh god the death of joy. Yeah, no. And speaking of which, today we're talking about shoulder alignment dogma. So We've been doing think, a few of these. Yeah, talk talk about taking ourselves a little too seriously. The shoulder, the shoulders is an area. Well, it's called the shoulder complex, and we're going to get into why the shoulders is referred to as a joint complex. But it's often a place that I find, at least in terms of how how the shoulders are cued or what's insisted on, that just can become really terribly over complicated. Definitely. And so. We are going to try to keep the shoulder light, funny, and uncomplicated for you. Fantastic. Let's, I love it. Let's see if it works. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to get right into talking about the shoulder and some of the bones and joints that make up this area. So Sarah, do you want to mm-hmm. start us off with telling us about the bones and the joints of the shoulder joint complex? Absolutely. Uh, and not to humble brag, but I am going to humble brag. At the clinic, I'm sort of known as the shoulder whisperer. Oh, nice. Yeah. My boss calls me the shoulder whisperer. That's amazing. Which is because she's like, I don't know. She's like, I don't understand how you understand shoulders that well. Mm. And I honestly, there's no reason that I should. There's just something about it where 
I don't know if this is how it is for you, Laurel. And here we are, not meandering, but I'm totally meandering. <laughs> Where there's, are there parts of the body that you feel like you really have a bigger, like a better handle on, a better grasp of your understanding of the mechanics and things like that than others? Like for me, hips, I totally understand. Hips, knees, low back. I mean, I'm just starting to name all the parts, but like, I think like when somebody comes in with an ankle thing, that's when I'm like, all right, I gotta, I gotta think a little harder mm. around the ankle and the foot and all of that kind of stuff. And it may be the amount of detail that I have to go into that maybe for a movement professional who's not doing rehab, perhaps doesn't have to quite mm. so much, but that's been my feeling. But I, I do like shoulders. I find them oddly compelling. And there's often, this is a spoiler, not spoiler, but a lot of the time the scapula is the part that's screwing the shoulder up. And that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily know. So the shoulder complex, like if we think of the shoulder joint, like what you would consider your shoulder, like you point at it, that spot is made up of three different bones coming together. The humerus is your upper arm bone. And the head of the humerus is the top of it, which is the part that makes your shoulder. And then it meets up with your scapula, uh, with part of the scapula to make the little socket for the humerus to sit in, but it's barely a socket. It's more like if you visualize like a golf tee, mm -hmm. that's about as big and as deep as the, you know, quote unquote socket is. Relative to the, the golf ball. Right. The golf ball in this case, the head of the humerus is more like a, um, uh, like a lacrosse, not lacrosse ball. That's a bit big, but like, um, some, something between a golf ball and lacrosse ball. It's way bigger. Mm -hmm. It's not golf ball sized sitting on a golf tee sized. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's too big for the, for the, um, now, it's not too big for it, but it does anyway, it doesn't sit in it like a socket. Mm -hmm. And then the other bone that connects is the collarbone. So those three bones together come to this point that we think of as the shoulder, but there's no, there's not a lot of there there in terms of bone, right? Mm -hmm. So really the job of holding it all together goes to the soft tissue mm -hmm. more than anything else. Musc the muscles. Muscles, tendons, ligaments, ligaments, joint capsule, fascia. Yeah. Cool. So Sarah did some fun facts or some pelvis trivia in the <laughs> first episode of this dogma series. I'd like to make a similar contribution with my fun facts. Okay. So I think excited. something that I found really counterintuitive about the shoulder joint complex is where it connects to your torso. Like from the outside, it looks like the arm is just sort of tacked onto the trunk somehow. Right. And then you realize, oh, actually it, it connects to the shoulder blade, mm -hmm. which is kind of mind blowing. But then you go further and you're like, but how does the shoulder blade actually connect to the trunk? And you're like, well, it really kind of doesn't. No. The shoulder blade connects to the collarbone mm -hmm. at the acromioclavicular joint. And then the collarbone finally, finally connects to the top of the breastbone, which is called the manubrium. And so that joint, the um, sternoclavicular joint, is I think sometimes called the master joint. Like it's the it's the main like... I've never heard that. Uh, yeah, I don't know where I read that. I think it might have been in like maybe Joseph, Joe Muscolino's kinesiology book. Okay. Maybe. But that, that joint, which is an obscure joint that I don't think very many people even know exists, uh -uh. is where your entire upper extremity actually has bony connection via a true joint to the, the breastbone. Yeah. I mean, the scapula... Sometimes people talk about the scapulothoracic joint, quote unquote, which is where the scapula relates to the rib cage mm -hmm. on your back, but it's not technically a joint. It's a moving surface. I've heard it called a functional joint. Right. Right. 
versus an anatomical joint. There's there's no uh, joint space where there's a capsule. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, the, the, the the connection is muscular, but it's a place where two bones where movement happens. Right. Absolutely. It's a place where movement happens between bones, and so that is another way of defining a joint. So Definitely. I think it's fair to call it a a, a joint, um, and it's actually really crucial joint to the way that your arm can move. So Absolutely. we're going to be talking a lot about that joint. Um, and then can I talk about how your shoulder is actually connected to your pelvis that mm. most people don't understand yeah, or think sure. about or think about too much? Absolutely. I mean, we're in fun fact territory yeah. right now. So fun fact, your lats, which people think of as a back muscle, mm -hmm. but is also a shoulder muscle big time. Your lats connect all the way down to your thoracodorsal fascia, or sometimes people call it thoracolumbar fascia, which connects to your spine and your pelvis because back in the day and then also now, people climb trees, mm -hmm. right? Or like back when we were monkeys, mm -hmm. or monkeys still climb trees, right? So you need something that connects your shoulder to your pelvis in order to pull your body up a tree mm. or any other climbing surface that you're climbing on. So I think a lot about shoulder and pelvis connection, maybe more than your average bear does. Nice. All right, so let's talk about the movements available at the glenohumeral joint. So first of all, the glenohumeral joint right, where the arm bone and the, the scapula or the shoulder blade meet, is if you put your fingers at the tip of your shoulder top, right, where you would like have the angel and the devil sitting, like walk <laughs> way out to the tip, the, that precipice, and swing your arm around, and you'll probably feel the head of your humerus moving somewhat underneath your finger. But then if you walk your fingers toward your neck and swing your arm around, you're probably not going to feel that of the humerus swinging around as much because now you're on top of your shoulder blade and you're probably close to a joint where your shoulder blade and your collarbone meet, which is the acromioclavicular joint. We're not really going to be talking about movement happening at the acromioclavicular joint because it's super small, subtle, and really nothing you could actually control or cue that much. We are going to talk a lot about movement available at the glenohumeral joint and then that functional joint, the scapulothoracic joint. Um, there's different terminology used for how the arm moves at the shoulder blade versus how the shoulder blade moves at the rib cage. So we're going to go through all this ter these terms now. So basically the arm can move or swing forward and back. So forward is flexion. And that's really counterintuitive, Sarah, right? Like, did you have to re kind of program your brain to say flexion when the arms were moving forward and all the way up over your head? Because a lot of people will cue in yoga, for example, like extend your arms up toward the ceiling. Yes, I definitely did. I mean, it was... There's been, it was a while ago, so my brain is now just programmed yes. that way, but I do remember having to think about it like, okay, that is flexion and the other way is extension. Yes, exactly. So that's in the sagittal plane. Then the arm can abduct, which is really just another, I like to think of it like another route to going overhead. It's like taking a different road to get to the store, right? So you can take your arms out away from the midline and up overhead, which is abduction. Right. And then back down to alongside your body is adduction in the coronal plane. Um, all these movements are mirrored by your by your hips. So if you understand hip direction of movement, you, you pretty much have a really good handle on shoulder direction of movement. So then just like the hips, your arms can rotate internally and externally. Okay, so there's a couple of directions of movement that don't often get named, but I think are really important to understand, especially further into this episode when we start talking about ways of simplifying shoulder movement and like really codifying like 
how the arm and the shoulder blade are coordinating together to create force or to create movement. And so the, the ones that, um, I didn't learn about until I started studying strength training actually. And like studying for the CSCS exam was the horizontal abduction and adduction. Yeah. So horizontal abduction and adduction. I, I like to think of the horizontal part as like, if you reach your arms, if you're standing upright, you reach your arms straight out in front of you, like you're doing a standing plank, your arms are then horizontal to the floor, but actually it relates more to the horizontal plane of movement, which is if you were to divide the body into a top and bottom half, you would have that horizontal plane at which you would be able to then really see rotation, right? But horizontal abduction and adduction happens in that plane, but it's not, it's not necessarily pure rotation. If you take your arms forward, like you're in a standing plank, and then you open your arms out to the side to the shape of a T or a cross, that's called horizontal abduction. So again, you're taking your arms away from the midline of the body out to the side. And then when you close your arms together, this is horizontal adduction. So in yoga, you would see horizontal abduction happening if you're going from plank to side plank, right? And that's a closed chain example. In plank, your hands are fixed to the floor. So the upper extremity is clear, the shoulders closed chain. And then you take from that position, relatively speaking of horizontal adduction, you take and turn your torso open to face the side and your other arm up toward the ceiling, right? And, and you've just horizontally abducted your shoulders. In strength training, we do horizontal abduction when we do the bench press, right? So you're lying on your back, now you're in a supine plank and you start to lower the bar down towards your chest, your arms are gonna move from that more midline, kind of close to the midline position, out directly to the side and even back behind you, right? Um, so horizontal abduction and adduction are also hip movements, right? When you go from warrior three to half moon pose, this is horizontal abduction. Um, when you turn from like a lunge facing the front of your mat and then you open out to warrior two, that would be horizontal abduction of your front hip. So it's happening all the time. We just, in my teacher training and like when I, even when I studied kinesiology, necessarily learn these terms, but yeah. they're, they're actually used a lot in strength training. And there's also, can I jump in with mm -hmm. some details about it? So this movement of this horizontal abduction, adduction shows up quite a bit more in our kind of activities of daily living. Like if you think about you get in your car and then you reach your arm across your body to grab the seatbelt mm -hmm. to then take it and put it into the, whatever the thing is called that it clicks into, mm -hmm. that's a horizontal abduction, adduction movement, right? Or if you were going to do that thing where you hold the bottom of your shirt and then you pull it up and off overhead, there's a component of that horizontal adduction into abduction in that. A lot of the way that we in rehab work on shoulder movement is with uh, what are called the D1 and D2 shoulder patterns, mm -hmm. which are these combined movements of adduction or abduction flexion or extension and internal or external rotation in in patterns that are that we see typically like so that the movement of taking your shirt off the movement of grabbing your seatbelt the movement of you know i can't think of any others but the, the, they they replicate the way we move in real life which is not one plane at a time yeah, obviously exactly. yeah obviously totally totally yeah so horizontal abduction i've heard described as a combination of abduction and rotation well it actually or adduction and rotation technically it depends because you could i could take my arm and horizontally abduct it 
with like my palm faced up and then mm -hmm. the supination of my form and then the external rotation of my palm. So that's abduction with external rotation, but I could also choose to switch it palm down. And now my, my upper arm is either neutral or internally rotated mm -hmm. and I can bring it out to the side. Where right. I've, so it depends on what you're doing. Where I've heard that example given is when you're going from warrior three to half moon pose in the hip, in right? The hip, so the standing right. hip in warrior three is neutral rotation and it's basically it's it's flexed right and then you you open up to half moon pose and now suddenly that standing hip is externally rotated right. and uh abducted right? right but it's horizontally abducted it's it's confusing but it's not confusing because well and it's basically when you learn to recognize it in daily life or in your yoga practice you're like oh actually it's actually much simpler to just yeah. call that horizontal abduction absolutely and that movement that example in the hip the part of the reason why it becomes external rotation is because the foot is fixed mm -hmm. like if you if you're if you were doing that movement with your leg not closed chain you would have an option of whether you're turning your foot out or turning it in right so they end up just being all of these you know, you, you can go crazy trying to like pick out every tiny little piece of like, well, is that there's a little bit of that horizontal adduction, but then now there's some flexion, you know, you can really go mental. So S similar to the pelvis episode, we're yeah. getting into territory where this is not great podcasting material. <laughs> what are you talking about? I think it's fascinating. People are fascinated by listening to us talk about something and trying to visualize it in their head. Isn't that what all great podcasting is? Very difficult to imagine. She's confident, folks. I'll give her that. Uh, so circumduction is another, like, eh, it's not, I don't know if we call it a direction of movement. It's a, it's a way the shoulder can move, basically, if you do shoulder circles, right? So that's circumduction. It's a combination of all of those directions of movement that we named. And part of why it's so easy to do circumduction in the shoulder is because that glenohumeral joint is so tiny, right? Mm -hmm. That little golf tee head is so little that there's not a bunch of bones in the way. Mm -hmm. So you have tons of room to circle your arms around. Yeah, and that's something we should say too, like the shoulder is the most mobile joint of the body because of its lack of bony stopping points, really. Right, right. Um, and then there's scapular tilt, mm -hmm. which I love talking about scapular tilt because, I mean, it's really hard to <laughs> see, let alone talk about on a podcast. But if you remember back to the episode on pelvic tilt, where I mentioned that a good way to remember how a body part that's kind of buried in the trunk blob moves, right? Mm -hmm. It's like to just remember that when the top of the structure moves forward, it's anterior tilt. And when the bottom of the structure moves forward, it's posterior tilt. And or when the top of the structure moves back, it's posterior tilt. When the bottom of the structure moves forward, it's posterior tilt. And if you're if you're fluent in pelvic direction of movement language, you can easily visualize that when the pelvis spills forward, it's anterior tilt, and back, it's posterior tilt. Well, you know what? You can apply this same rationale to the shoulder blade and the way the shoulder blade can tilt. So the shoulder blade, the top of the shoulder blade, the shoulder blade is kind of a triangle, right? So the top of the shoulder blade is kind of one side of the triangle and the bottom tip of the shoulder blade is like that kind of apex of the triangle, right? So the apex is pointing down. When the top of the shoulder blade tilts back and the tip of the shoulder blade pushes toward the rib cage, this is posterior tilt of the scapula. And so it's really what it's doing is it's taking the whole socket of the shoulder blade and moving it further back, right? And then when the opposite happens, you see the wing tips or the chicken wings of the shoulder blades kind of winging off the back. And the top of the shoulder blade is coming forward. And you might also have some associated forward shoulder positioning with that, which is often like demonized. And we'll get into that. But like, 
that's that's anterior tilt of the scapula and so people maybe don't realize this but like scapular tilt is a really good thing it's a really good thing that your shoulder blades can tilt i think a lot of times scapular tilt is held up as this thing that we just we should we should like uh oh oh no your your scapula are winging, winging. Off your back yes, right winging and so the only good way that the scapula tilt it, according to many is in that posterior tilt direction and mm-hmm. it's just not the case because why is it good that the that the scapula can tilt, Sarah? What do you think? Well, that movement of tilting is it's three dimensional in the sense of if you imagine like what the scapula is doing is it's it's either kind of riding up and over the top of your shoulder, mm-hmm. right, or it's riding back and down. Yeah, and we have to think about that in terms of what it does to all of the bones around it. And I actually have, I'll see if I can add this video clip somewhere, but I have this really cool clip of just the bones of the shoulder moving through mm-hmm. all of their movements. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool to watch because you really see how much like forwards and backwards movement happens around the shoulder complex, which we tend to think of like, it's just your arm. It's going up and down, forwards yeah. and backwards, side to side, in and out, whatever. But there's a ton of anterior, posterior movement. And all of that is mm-hmm. what allows for strength and stability in all of these positions like a plank or like a hang mm-hmm. right or all of these things where the arm is in a different position in term in relation to whatever it's the rib cage yeah in relation but in relation to gravity and space right and the rest of the so the collarbone also moves a ton the clavicle moves a huge amount when your mm-hmm. arm goes overhead right or it should so all of these other bones are there to help create that strength and stability and also they the movement of the shoulder blade keeps the muscles in their uh, most optimal strength range mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So that it gives you just like the best position for your shoulder for things like a pull up or a push up or all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, ultimately your shoulder blade is the root of your hand, right? So wherever <laughs> nice. you wanna be able to reach your hand, which I mean, arguably, I think some some evolutionary biologists that I read a book by, Cameron, I think it was like Daniel Lieberman maybe, made the case for the fact that our hands are actually responsible or a lot of times the reason people make the case for opposable thumbs being 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 one of the explanations for the development of the human brain mm-hmm. and how freaking smart people are like relative to the other mammals on the planet is that we were able to use our hands to craft tools to learn more about our environment in order to craft more sophisticated tools and so our hands were really our window into learning about learning about how to keep learning, right? Creating tools to be able to keep learning and exploring. So if our scapula is able to move more in this bonus kind of tilt way, it just means we're able to put our hand in more places. Because your scapula can do the winging thing that everyone likes to demonize, which is what, Sarah, anterior tilt? Oh, well, it depends, because sometimes it's just the medial border of it, you know, lifting off of your ribcage. Yeah, we've, that winging, we, like... we've simplified, a vastly simplified winging, because there's there's a bunch yeah. of terminology yeah. that get, gets used around it. But because your shoulder blade can pop off your ribcage somewhat, you're able then to take your hand behind your back and like up your back, mm-hmm. right? So that might be useful. Totally. <laughs> What's on my back right now? Let's right. get it off. Get it off me. <laughs> well, and like for people who have cats or dogs, one of my favorite things is like go palpate your cat or dog's scapula. And their scapula are vertical, basically. Uh, fun fact time. Ooh. I've heard, 
I feel like this episode has been only fun facts so far. So far, it's all fun facts, right? So this is an extra fun fact. Fantastic. Can we do extra fun facts? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the shoulder blade has been likened to the kneecap in the sense that it is a floating bone. And I've heard people describe the shoulder blade as a modified sesamoid bone, which we haven't gotten into the types of bones, but the shoulder blade is either a flat bone or an irregular bone, depending on who you ask, like the femur is a long bone and the humerus is a long bone. That makes sense. But it's, it's, it's an oddly shaped bone, but I actually really like the classification of it as a modified sesamoid bone because it floats and slides around like the kneecap. Sure. Not all sesamoid bones slide around that much, right? but I like that description because it gives, in my mind, a more accurate idea of like what the role of the shoulder blade is, which is to float around on your rib cage. I've also heard it described as a hockey puck, like an air hockey puck. It floats around on your rib cage. And what that is essentially doing is positioning the socket in different places relative to your rib cage. So to Sarah's point, the shoulder blade can move in all these different ways. And what's happening then is that the socket is being oriented differently relative to the rib cage, relative to where your hand is trying to go. And so just prioritizing, I think, in our mind, this idea that the shoulder blade should move is important and we're going to get into to why yeah and th- and that it that it's capable of moving and that it and that it's it needs to move it needs to be able to move and be in these places for you to then be able to put your hand where you want it to put your hand or exert force on an object the way you want to do that all right um now since we're talking about how important shoulder blade movement is for where you can put your hands can you tell us about scapulohumeral rhythm with, would... with just keeping it as please god keep it simple <laughs> I'll do my best. It's actually not that complicated. No, it's not. So if you think about degrees like on your protractor from math class, right? Oh, it's already way too complicated. Okay, but anyway, if you <laughs> if you I'm imagine if you imagine your arm down by your side is zero degrees and your arm directly overhead is 180 degrees. That I can get on board with. That makes sense, right? Yes. Okay. So your shoulder, generally speaking, unless there's reasons why not, you a healthy shoulder should be able to go directly overhead, right, to 180 degrees. Now, the movement at your glenohumeral joint, so the movement of your arm bone sitting on that little tiny thing inside your shoulder, for most people, like if you isolated just that movement, you get roughly 120 degrees. So if you didn't have a scapula, you would only ever be able to lift your arm 120 degrees, which is like a bit above midline. To get your arm the rest of the way up, the scapula does 60 degrees of movement, Mm -hmm. right? And so that adds up to our 180. You don't do 120 degrees with your arm and then stop, and then your scapula does its 60. Those two things are blended. When you start to lift your arm up in any direction, and this is something else that I wanted to talk about, like when we when we describe movement of the arm, we talk about like directly forward is flexion, directly out to the side is abduction, but any forward movement between flexion and abduction, right? So there's 90 degrees of possible places apart from straight forward that you can go. Anytime you're lifting your arm forwards at all, the scapula starts moving pretty quickly, like Mm -hmm. even within like 15 to 20 degrees, Mm -hmm. the scapula has already started to do its 60 degrees worth of movement. Mm -hmm. And so together they add up to 180 and take your arm overhead. And so that's what's called scapulohumeral rhythm is the, the way that the scapula assists the arm to complete that overhead movement. And this is why I so often see issues for people in 
their sh- where they're having issues or pain in their shoulder in in and around the glenohumeral joint a lot of the time it's because the scapula is not moving enough mm-hmm. and it's getting in the way and it's become stuck and it you know it has so many muscles attached to it or that like lie over it things like that that any amount of like you know tension stickiness all of the things that happen to muscles when they don't move a lot can inhibit your shoulder movement yeah and so when when your arm is moving into an overhead position via whatever route you decide to take flexion through the sagittal plane abduction or something in between the shoulder blade triangle remember the apex is pointing down is going to rotate on your back so this is a this is akin to i would think of like if you were looking at someone's back and you put a dot right in the center of their shoulder blade and you could think of that as being sort of the axis of rotation the shoulder blade spins like a pinwheel almost Mm -hmm. around that that axis of rotation and so the whole shoulder blade orients itself differently relative to the rib cage and ultimately the important part about that is that the socket of the shoulder which is the glenohumeral joint of the complex orients from a more sideways slightly forward facing position to a more upward facing position which allows then the head of your humerus to stay within that golf tee right so scapular humeral rhythm though sarah is it something that we need to control and like think about and like actively like create well you can't so you're (laughs) thank you so don't worry about it exactly but i mean you worry don't worry about it unless you're having shoulder pain and then maybe you know see what your shoulder blades up to right but your scapula so that movement of rotation is called uh the the movement is called upward rotation when it goes up when your arm comes back down or when your arm goes behind you that is downward rotation those movements are coupled with shoulder flexion shoulder abduction like all of those things so you can't tell your body upwardly rotate my scapula but you can tell your body reach my arm overhead and the scapula will hopefully go along with a lot of time when i'm doing rehab with people i'll have them doing active movement of their arm and i'm behind them manually assisting the shoulder blade to go the amount that it's supposed to be going Mm -hmm. right so i'm back there kind of fiddling around with and controlling that part and they're controlling the part that they can that everybody can which is the movement of the arm yeah cool yeah So this can get really complicated, and we haven't even really talked about the ways that the shoulder blades can move. So, I mean, I I did mention tilting of the shoulder blade, Mm -hmm. but actually I didn't mention the other main movements. So maybe we should back up, right? So the shoulder blades can slide up your back and down your back, elevate and depress. And then the shoulder blades can slide around the rib cage toward the front of the rib cage, which is called protraction. And then they can slide back behind the rib cage toward the spine, which is retraction and a nice... Uh, image for that I've heard is like elevator doors, right? So the spine is like the center of the entryway into the elevator. And as the shoulder blades slide apart, that's opening the elevator doors. And when they slide toward the spine, it's closing the elevator doors. It's not so linear, like left, right. So because the thing about the rib cage is that it is curved. Okay. And so the motion of the shoulder blade is always also curvilinear. It's not linear. Ooh, it's curvilinear. curvilinear. Is that a real name? It's a real word. It's not, I would, I mean, I like the name. Maybe I'll, I'll name my, my next pet curvilinear, but it's a, uh, it's a word. That's great. I've and never it, heard that word it, before. It, it's a line that follows a curve. Amazing. Curvilinear. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every time you walk on planet earth, you're walking a cur- curvilinear it's true. path. It's right? true. I really like that image of the elevator doors opening and closing mm-hmm. because 
yes, it's it's not doing a straight movement, but like if you're working on your retraction or protraction, you don't need to worry about the curve. The curve is happening. Yeah, the right? curve is there. You're, you're not just thinking together yeah. and apart. Exactly. I love it. I'm stealing that. Great. Good. Um, we don't need to get lost in the weeds, though. No, we don't. With while moving our shoulders, what every little detail of every little bone is doing. No, we haven't we even don't. talked about the collarbone and we're not going to. Oh, but it's, I love it Okay, so do much. you want to? The only thing I want to say. Okay, please, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Laura's like, we're not going to talk about it. I'm like, but I want to. And she's like, she's got a look on her face of like, fine. <laughs> Maybe I'll edit this out. <laughs> but I just, this is because, you know when you have like favorite things? One of my favorite movements that happens in the human body, and again, this is not something that you're controlling. I just think it's amusing. So your collarbone, right, that clavicle that is that long, it feels like it's a big straight bone, but it's actually kind of S-shaped along mm -hmm. that length. When you raise your arm overhead, it rolls backwards, mm -hmm. which I adore. I don't know why, but it makes me think of, you know those machines that keep hot dogs warm in like the 7-Eleven and it's just like, it's making the hot dogs like rotate in space. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. That's what I think of. I think of your collarbone <laughs> like a rotating hot dog, just moving through space, being controlled by other things and having no idea what's going on. Nice. You know, I've always loved hot dogs, but when I was a yoga teacher, I was afraid to admit it. Oh yeah. And you're not supposed to. I'm still a yoga teacher, but I've, I've evolved. Oh good. I love hot dogs. <laughs> If given a choice between a burger and a hot dog, hot dog, 10 oh, out of 10 times. Interesting. Oh, I'm the exact opposite. I'm hamburger all the way. Although it has to be a cheeseburger. I don't like a hamburger without cheese. But yeah, no, I would 100% hamburger. Listeners, weigh in. in. When you write a review, tell us if you like hamburgers or hot dogs better. Yes, thank you. We're going to publish it as research. Um, oh, and then we're going to over-extrapolate to go like, the people who eat the hot dogs clearly are the most intelligent. Oh, are they? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, have shoulders that have pain. People who are the least health conscious are also the most intelligent. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. I just spat up my coffee. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, that went up my nose. Oh, Sarah. <laughs> it actually went up your soft palate? Yes, it did. Okay. <laughs> Should we stop and describe the pathway of the coffee yeah. into my nasal cavity? <laughs> and oh. how does it relate to the shoulder? Exactly. I mean, uh, you could draw a line, I'm sure. Uh, a curvy linear line. Curvy linear? Curvy linear. Okay, whatever you want, Sarah. Sure. Just call it what you want. Ugh. We, we, we could get really super lost in the weeds. So, because we've named like eight ways the shoulder blades move and like nine ways that the arm moves. I mean, I'm not lost personally because I deal with this every day. But if I was listening to this, I might be like... When are they going to stop naming body parts? But would you maybe be a little annoyed if like someone tried to cue every single thing to you in a moving class? Oh, 100%. Right. And have you ever been yes. you know, at a point in your career where you tried to cue every single thing? Oh, also 100%. Yes. yes. So well, I guess what we're going to say now is like, it seems complicated. It is the shoulder joint complex. Mm. There's a reason it's called that, right? But it doesn't have to be cued in a complicated way at all. And I'm going to give you a really simple way to codify the way that the shoulder functions, which is that the shoulder is doing usually one of two things. It's either pushing or pulling, right? Nice. And so when we think about the way the shoulder blades tend to move in a push versus a pull, we're gonna see a pattern. Um, when we think about the way the shoulder blades and, and the arm tend to move in a pull, 
uh, we tend to see a pattern. Now, here's where I'm going to also bring in that terminology of horizontal abduction and adduction, because they're in strength training, right? Are there tend to be two main ways, and there's obviously way more ways than this, but like there's two main ways that we either push or pull. There's a vertical push and a horizontal push. Okay, so vertical push would be like strict presses, right? Taking a barbell and pressing it straight over your head in a vertical relationship to the floor, right? If we're standing. And then a horizontal push is like the bench press, right? So there's that horizontal abduction, adduction movement again. Same thing with a pull, right? So when we row, we're doing a horizontal pull. A row is really just working the opposite musculature of a bench press, right? And then the vertical pull would be the pull-up, okay? So when we do a push, it, it generally tends to be that the shoulder is either horizontally adducting to push something away from the body, or it's abducting or flexing to push something away from the body. And the shoulder blades have a corresponding movement with that. Typically, it's there's going to be some upward rotation if it's a vertical push. There's going to be some protraction, most likely, if it's a horizontal push. Then um, the pull is the opposite, right? So when we do a horizontal pull, it's probably the case that the arms are going to horizontally abduct to pull the object toward our body if it's if it's a row, say. And the shoulder blades are probably going to move toward the spine. The elevators doors are going to close, right? Retract. With the vertical pull, the shoulder blades are going to downwardly rotate, right? The arms are going to move toward a position of extension, right? And so we don't need to cue these things happening. What we need to do is get better at cueing, pushing, and pulling, mm -hmm. and potentially relying on more than just verbal cues to do it, right? So we have a whole episode on actually a three-part series, kind of like the Dogma series this season, last season in, in season two, on cueing. So definitely check those episodes out. Um, all right, so Let's talk about some alignment dogma now. Fantastic. Like gone through. There's so freaking much. So much about There's the shoulder. There's so much. Uh, oh, man. So alignment is being used interchangeably in this series of podcast episodes in this season with posture and also movement quality. Um, Sarah, can yes. you reiterate for us, remind us, mm -hmm. like what is the, the established scientific relationship between alignment, posture, movement quality, and pain? It's really easy. There is none. Great. Thank you. Um, Moving on. <laughs> well, this is kind of review. Right. Um, even though we just talked about this yesterday, technically. Right. But it's not yesterday. We're batch recording, yeah. right? This is actually months later. <laughs> um, so not only has science not found a relationship, which we could call a correlation between posture and pain slash injury, it also, they're, they're, obviously, if there's no, re, there's no co correlation, there's also no causation. So we can't, we can't say that tilted or winging scapula causes shoulder pain, right? Right. And and we, we also can't say that it's even related to shoulder pain. No. <laughs> There's no relationship there. So I mean here's the thing, and, and this is also like the more bodies you see, right? This is the thing. The more bodies you see, the more variation you see that is totally normal. You'll see something like a person with a very like when we were talking about spine dogma and how some people do not have large curves in their spine. They don't have a big lordosis kyphosis relationship. Some people's spines are very just vertical, which is totally normal. And their rib cage correspondingly is not very rounded, but then perhaps their scapula 
are still rounded as if they would be meeting up with a rounded rib, uh, rib cage. Mm-hmm. So then that person's scapular are always winging, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. There's nothing they can do about it, Yeah. right? But it's not necessarily a pain-causing issue or mm-hmm. an alignment issue, right? Mm-hmm. It's just this is their anatomy. Right, it's you their know? anatomy. I think you started to say, like, when you've looked at a lot of bodies or you've seen a lot of people, you realize that human beings express posture in a wide variety of ways. Mm-hmm. But someone else might actually complete that sentence by saying, when you see a lot of bodies, you realize how fucked up everyone's posture is, right? Because it depends on what you think you're there to do. Right. So if you think you're there to make everybody look the same, you're going to see a bunch of bodies and go like, what a mess. Glad right. I'm here, right? right. Good thing they know, came to class today. Good thing. Good th- yeah, I'm, I'm going to be you know, easily employed for life. Right. I'm going to get the winging gone. I got all, all these, these people. All these messes to clean up. Right. 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 Or you can finish the sentence like Sarah did, which is that everyone's different. There's nothing you need to do about that. Nope. What you need to do is come to terms with the fact that everyone is different. Well, and also, <laughs> like, it's, it's a change in your focus, so instead of your focus being what it looks like, right, which is where there's going to be all of this variety that is totally normal, that is totally functional, what you want to look at instead is what is the, I mean, I think of movement quality different than like alignment. I think of movement quality like do they have full range of motion? Do they have strength at that end range of motion? But so, what? but, you know, these are all just like we could we could banter about terms for a while and whatever we want to call something, but... I would call that capacity. Okay, sure. Rather than the appearance, what's way more useful to start to, and way more sophisticated, is if you start looking at their capacity. Mm-hmm. Can that person with the scapula that looks crazy to you still get their arm overhead without pain or hold a weight overhead or hang or do a bench press or a row? And if the answer is yes, then you, there's nothing for you to fix. Yeah, I always remember like just how captivatingly beautiful ballet dancers yeah. are to watch move and then also how much pain they're in. <laughs> and to also, go like maybe yep. movement quality doesn't predict like if someone has excellent, captivating, magical movement quality, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't have pain. Sure. And there's so many, I mean, ballet and specifically, I could go on for hours about because that's where how I trained originally when I was a little kid. But the, you know, if you think of Swan Lake and the, the ballerinas doing those arm waving movements, it's incredibly unnatural to do it the way that looks good because you have to do external rotation and then also pronate your forearm and then also go through abduction and adduction and don't let like you're forcing your body to do a movement in a really unnatural, weird way because it quote unquote looks nice, mm-hmm. right? And so- And they adapt to that. They adapt to that. But, but they also do it repetitively. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Without so, maybe too much variation. No. And maybe not a whole lot of strength training happening amongst the ballerinas Although I in just, the ballet world. I just came across this Instagram account of a, who is a person who is a ballet dancer and is doing all of this really cool, like the way that, you know, if a, somebody who plays golf- you end up working on like their rotation in the other direction because there's all they're always rotating one way for golf. This person is doing all of this instead of everything turned out. It's like all of this parallel strength training and like it's very cool. Like mm. they've actually sort of figured out where are the deficits for dancers yeah. and how do I prehab myself so I don't hurt myself. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, it's 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 definitely. Changing. But that's like, new. Strength training that's is really definitely new. it's catching on, Sarah. I don't it know is. if you've noticed. It is. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. All right. So we are going to talk about then some of this alignment dogma that 
despite what people might think it it's informing, it's actually maybe getting in the way of you being the most helpful influence like teacher or clinician that you could possibly be. Um, and we might also talk about why it's easier for people with human minds to latch on to dogma. As which, opposed to people with dog minds to <laughs> latch on to human <laughs> As opposed to... Um, Scientific s- suspe- suspending Suspending disbelief in terms of like what conventional wisdom has repeatedly told you is happening in favor of recognizing what like large bodies of evidence are suggesting. And in other words, it's hard to think scientifically and it's much easier to think like a human being, which is really not a very scientific way to think. No. I hate to tell you. Yeah. I mean, we've been incredibly evolutionarily successful. So to our credit, it's working. We've it's managed, going okay. We've managed to keep ourselves alive as a species right. very, very well. But I do think that we would have a much better chance of surviving on this planet as a population if we became more scientifically literate. I was about to say, is this turning into a podcast about climate change? It might as well. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> I can't believe we're not talking about climate change. Like, why are not more people talking about climate yes. change? But that's neither here nor there. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to get super bummed out. I know, we can't. <laughs> we we got to move about on. Climate it's change. the worst. It's okay. the worst. So we are going to talk a little bit about the counterintuitiveness that we may need to be willfully stepping into to be able to think scientifically because oftentimes scientific evidence flies in the face of conventional wisdom. All right. Also, we're going to be engaging in some inquiry here. So rather than making bold declarative statements about like, oh, that's nonsense, that belief that people have about their shoulders is total crap. Let's just move on and forget about it now that we've thrown it in the garbage. We're actually going to take a couple of questions and put some of this dogma to the test of inquiry, right? To see if, you know, actually are, is, is there a valid goal here? Does it sometimes achieve that goal? Like we're going to give benefit of the doubt to, to the idea. I think when we do that, right, when we give the benefit of the doubt to somebody's idea that we might kind of knee jerk want to reject out of hand, we are also thinking more scientifically, right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So we're going to ask uh, five questions. One is, what is the goal that this alignment dogma that we are we are calling it dogma, but what is it actually trying to fix with total benefit of the doubt? Does it fit, does it achieve that goal? Does it interfere with it? Question number three: Why or why not? Um, question number four is like, could it still be helpful for some people some of the time? Question number five is, if so, who and under what circumstance? We're going to take hopefully a more nuanced look at some of this stuff to see if it has maybe not universal value, but maybe some um, special case value. Okay. So let's start with the low hanging fruit, the low down, shoulders back and down, low hanging fruit, Sarah, because I'm going to ask you this one because Uh I just want to see you get all worked up. I mean, I'm already covering my face with my hands, so I don't know how much more work up I could get, but shoulders back and down is a nightmare. <sighs> yeah, so I hate it. It I think it's changing, it's getting better, but I still occasionally go to a group fitness class where there's a lot of insistence that everyone keeps their shoulders back and down in like every single activity whether it's a pull, a push, mm-hmm. horizontal. But if someone's just standing there, I mean, it it's it can be rampant and I think it's I think the message is spreading that the shoulder blades do not always need to be back and down, but 
I don't think it's totally no. hit every single and person. Definitely in the yoga and Pilates world, it's still a very common cue. Yeah. Okay, so could you just unpack for us for a moment, what are the two directions of motion that we're talking about here? When people say shoulders back and down, what bone are they actually speaking to? Well, they're talking about the scapula. Right, and back? Yeah. What is that? Back is retraction, so towards the spine. And down? Down is depression, so away from your ears. Okay, so if you're telling someone to keep their shoulders back and down while they're taking their arms around or lifting a weight overhead or whatever it is, you're basically saying don't move your shoulder blades yes keep keep them back and down okay i hear this a lot when the arms especially when the arms need to go up yes which is really problematic yes because you're essentially (laughs) asking for the two opposite directions that the shoulder blades are supposed to be going in in order to take your arm overhead right so if we're talking mere moments ago we were talking about that scapulohumeral rhythm right and the scapula has to do upward rotation which is a combination movement of some protraction but there's also some elevation happening as well, yeah. right? So it's, it's, it, uh, I, 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 this happens to me. I turn into like a, uh, 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 cause I get so irritated that people still think it's the right place. It's the, well, it's, it's not that it's the wrong place always, but it's not the right place always. And that's the belief yeah, is that this is the go. right place always mm-hmm. in every situation. Yeah. And one of the things I think about, I'm just going to tell a patient story for a second. Mm-hmm. A patient I had a few years ago who, you know, and this is not just in the teacher world, like this concept of the shoulders back and down as like good posture Mm -hmm. has absolutely infiltrated gen pop in a big, big way. Like when when people come to me and they're like, I think I have bad posture. Like, I feel like my shoulders need to be further back and away from my ears. And in my head, I'm going, oh God, oh God, oh God. Um, But so I had this patient a few years ago, and she was having some low back pain when she came in. Low back pain was her like main thing. And you know, as we're doing our eval and started working with her and everything, I started noticing that she was just really obsessively with everything, doing shoulders back and down. And I asked her about it, and she was like, "Oh, this is just where I thought my shoulder blades were supposed to be all the time." And I said, "How does it feel to do that?" She's like, "Well, it makes my back hurt." I'm like, "Yeah, no shit." Because you are overactivating your retraction, and then that depression, after a certain point, your lats are just working so hard. You told this story in the Movement Logic Shoulders tutorial. Did I? Yeah. Yes, you did. It was which, nuts. By the way, it was one of our most popular tutorials. Shoulders is way the heck up there. It was a, yes. Second to hips. Yes. Surprise, surprise. Surprising. Not surprising. Not surprising. Yeah. But so, yeah. So, so I said, well, what if you stop doing that? And that was like 50% of what she came in for was pain associated with this aggressively positioning, never moving shoulder blades back and down. I need to go take a breath. (laughs) Okay, so I think this is a great time for us to do the five-step assessment. Assessment. Sure. It's kind of like doubles as therapy for Sarah right now. (sighs) We're saving so much money that I would have been spending on therapy around this. Just talking talking it through on air. Yeah. You know what? Just just, just find a podcast. You know, no, this is a big joke. Like definitely get a therapist, everybody out there. (laughs) Yes. The podcast. Therapy's amazing. I have a, I've been in therapy for years. Yeah. Podcast is not a suitable exchange for going to therapy. God, no. Okay. Question number one. This is going to be hard for you. What is the goal with total benefit of the doubt of keeping the shoulder blades back and down, do you think in people's minds? Well, I think- what Are they trying to fix or avoid or help? The, I think it's this idea of this, you know, quote unquote, having good posture, mm. right? That's a, that's a concept 
that is, again, not just in the yoga Pilates strength world, it's, it's rampant. Mm. People are being told all over the place that they have bad posture and that their pain is because of their bad posture. That's why their body hurts, da, da, da. So I think it's completely misguided, but I think the original goal of it is to have good posture because then we're associating having good posture with not having pain. Okay. But there they're also, I mean, the other <laughs> thing is like people definitely think there's a moral failing that people feel like they have when they have bad posture. Like people who come Cap- in capitalism. Well, people who come into the clinic, they may, you know, they, let's say they can't, they might be like coming in because they had a, you know, knee surgery or something. But very often they'll be like, oh, my posture's really bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, does your back hurt or your shoulder? No, but I just have really bad posture. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it's like confessional almost, right? Mm hmm. And I, it, that makes me crazy for people because yeah. I'm like, you're just not only you're, you're you've got enough problems. We mm-hmm. all do, right? We've got mm-hmm. enough stressors. Walking around, giving yourself a hard time about your own posture because you're supposed to be somewhere else, just isn't that helpful. It's also not that helpful to be walking around constantly fixing your posture. No, the posture is determined by your nervous system. It's largely autonomic. It's not something that you have to be thinking about. Just kind of like breathing and also your pelvic floor contracting and relaxing, right? Like we talked about how this, this is stuff that's, that's really governed by your nervous system. And like, it, it depends on neural tone and there, there are ways to change your posture, but it's not by like stretching and strengthening. And like, it's, it's di- not by fixing. Like if you want to change your posture, like maybe one of the best things you can do is like go to therapy or go on vacation yeah. or sleep better. I mean, I had a patient recently, <laughs> yeah, no, I had a patient I mean, recently who was having like a lot of pain kind of all over her body and especially in her neck and shoulders. And she would come in and I would do manual work on her, right? And, and she, this, this person's body was extremely tight. And, it, you know, tight is not a, a scientific word, but, you know, I touch a lot of bodies. Like she I, was I, stiff. The tissue itself was so mm. like dense and hard to penetrate mm. that I would do, you know, I'm strong from doing manual on people. I would be doing manual work on her and like nothing would change. Mm. So part of that is that neural mm. tension. And what we sort of discovered interestingly was, cause this is something that I started after, after a few weeks of like literally no change. That's when I'm like, okay, there's something bigger going on here that I'm missing yeah. because my interventions are not working. So we were, and she was open to this idea, but we were talking about like stress. Okay. Where is your stress Mm -hmm. coming from? What is in your life? Okay. This is a stressor and that. And ultimately what ended up happening was I suggested that she started some therapy Mm -hmm. and she did. And like a whole bunch of her pain went away. Right. So sometimes the pain in your body has nothing to do with your body and it's certainly not fixed by shoulders back and down. Yeah. And even, even if you don't have pain and you're like, kind of like, I don't like my posture or whatever, like posture is not just a biological or biomechanical situation. It's, it's biopsychosocial, right? Like and we talk a lot about how pain is biopsychosocial and how injury is biopsychosocial. So is just the, the simplicity of like saying someone's posture, right? Is right. this, it's like, it's not just the stacking of your bones. It's, right. it's not just where your shoulders are relative to your ribcage. It is biopsychosocial. And it's not a moral failing. <laughs> it's not. And that's know? the social part, right? Because right. we're taught from a very young age, stand up straight. Sit up straight. Don't slouch. It's, 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 it's really a signal of obedience or conformity. Totally. Right? My dad used to take his finger <gasps> and push it right in that spot between my shoulder blades and go, sit up straight. Oofta. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't... He was a little bit joking, but 
that was the message, mm-hmm. was no slouching. Oof. Yeah. All right. If we're looking at this cue of shoulders back and down, which I definitely, I, I would go to a kettlebell class regularly in New York City when I lived there, and it would, there was a lot of shoulders packing, staying fixed on the back, a lot of back and down. Is this while you're swinging? This is when I'm pressing that kettlebell over my head, right? Because, I mean, there's something to be said about not letting your shoulder blade get cranked around on your back while you're doing a kettlebell swing because that's not a great way to transfer force from the floor up through your hips to your arms, to your hands, to the kettlebell. You do, to a certain extent... It needs to move somewhat. In a deadlift, in a swing, want to keep your shoulder blades in a narrower like range of positions. Yes. You don't need to keep them locked down, but they're, they're not going to be moving around as much as possible. No, they're not going to be moving around as much as they were if you were just swinging your arm in a circle yeah. without a weight attached to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and the reason for that is like we're, we're now dealing with higher forces and transferring force to a heavy object. So... The thing is, though, that like, like Sarah said so well, it's like it's not always the wrong thing to do, but it's definitely not always the right thing to do. So I want to give just a couple of examples where some part of this cue might actually be a good thing to work toward in some strength exercises. For example, the bench press. Okay, the bench press is we are lying on our back, meaning our shoulder blades are in contact with a surface, right? Which is very different than say the bent over row, where we are bent forward, holding onto a weight with our hands and our shoulder blades are not in contact with a surface. In the bench press, especially if you're benching heavy weight, it's a good idea to make your shoulder blades as stable as possible, because then you're just going to be able to transfer more force to the bar. So this is why you'll see, and like in a really super exaggerated way, if you watch a power lifter bench a obscene amount of weight, you'll see them slide their shoulder blades as far under them as possible, retract their shoulder blades to maximum degree. Then you'll also see them do this gigantic bridge pose because they're basically trying to reduce the range of motion they have to move the bar through. Um, it's a little bit of a cheat, but it's not technically considered cheating. Um, and so the shoulders back part of the bench press has some validity. Um, another place where you might hear shoulders down cued is something like a dip, like a tricep dip. So we want to keep the shoulders down to a certain extent so that we're not, as we're, our elbows are bending, our shoulders are not also riding up toward our ears. We're not losing tension in the trunk. A lot, a lot of these cues to keep the shoulder blades relatively fixed or immobile on the back in strength training really have largely to do with creating some type of stable base of support like the bench press or creating trunk tension. Well, and also for something like that tricep dip, the, the name of it gives it away. Mm-hmm. We are focusing on elbow extension mm-hmm. for activation of the triceps muscle. Yeah. Therefore, the shoulder, which is the other place where the tricep attached, mm-hmm. need to be, needs to be still. More still, I would say. I mean, yeah. there's definitely a lot there's of downward rotation happening absolutely. at the shoulder. I mean, it's definitely like it's going to wing somewhat. But it's you're, going to have to wing somewhat. You're wing, not supposed wing meaning to. it's tilting, right, yeah. anteriorly. But you're not supposed to be pushing yourself up with your back muscles when you're doing your triceps no, dip as much no. as you're supposed to be pressing yourself up from your triceps. It's much more of a chest exercise, yeah. actually, in much and much more of a shoulder exercise than a back exercise, I would say, like a yeah. 
deltoid exercise. So yeah, um, there, there, there is a rationale for cueing people to keep their shoulder blades relatively still. What I wanted to contrast the, the bench press with the bent over row, where a lot of times you'll hear people suggesting that people doing your row should keep their shoulder blades retracted the whole time. And then th that's where I'm like, no, that's probably not as functional of a way to strengthen your shoulder girdle through a full range of motion like that that's where the shoulder blades are not connected to a surface like a bench and you you can let the shoulder blades protract as the bar lowers toward the floor and then retract as you row that barbell up towards your trunk or any derivation of a row right so let the shoulder blade move freely um so there so this is not just a like all cueing of shoulder blades back or all cueing of shoulder blades down is wrong right and there's there's plenty of opportunities to move the shoulder blades back and down in yoga as well mm -hmm. so i'm thinking of like reverse table right in reverse table our arms are extended we're pressing our front body up toward the ceiling with the knees bent or straight and in this case right if we let the shoulder blades move up or if we let the shoulder blades move out we're probably not going to be able to transfer force very efficiently from the ground to our trunk, which is heavy and we have to lift it up, right? So just keep in mind that there are definitely places and reasons that you would use this cue, but I think it's overused in general. Yeah. I think people just don't know what to say, so they say that. <laughs> well, I think the big thing that people learned in their teacher training was shoulders back and down, right? And and I mean, we're gonna get into this with like the overhead arm position, because that's another one that makes me nuts, mm -hmm. but like some of it, again, is an aesthetic. Mm -hmm right? The shoulders back and down. Oh, so, 100%. You know, make your neck longer. Exactly. Have a beautiful carriage right. or whatever. Yes. Like, I mean, I'm sure ballet dancers, like it looks like they are just perpetually trying to keep their shoulders back and down. Oh yeah. I'm like almost the whole time. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's maybe a performance goal to it that has more to do with aesthetics in the dance world. And I'm not going to make a judgment call on that because that is what it is. Right. Those people are being paid to do that. Yeah. And it's like, fine. But like, is as, as teachers, we're instilling in our students' minds that like their shoulders always need to be back and down. I think we're causing more problems. Definitely. Right? Definitely. Okay. If you're not a ballerina, your shoulders don't always need to be back and down. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just, I'm really entertained when you start talking about this because you get, again, you get like really worked up about it. But like, can you speak to the cube broaden across your collarbones? Oh, I, oh, I knew this was coming. Oh, that's the sound my soul makes. When I have to talk about broaden your collarbones. Okay, I have said that cue eighty billion times. Have you really? Oh my god! Like that was a that was a top yoga works cue. Like oh, broaden across your collarbones. Okay, it, so it was, let me ask it was you this. one I gave a lot. So it, because it, I never wait, 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 understood it. Like no, what is it supposed okay, to do? No, thank you for yeah. asking. Okay, so shoulder so broaden I'm across your collarbones. I'm also just trying to make you talk about it instead of me. <laughs> I know I don't actually use the cue that much anymore. I'm sure but, you don't. Bro, but I do sometimes. Oh. But broaden across your collarbones is a cue that I would give a lot in Baby Cobra. Okay, so baby cobra, it's really hard, in my opinion, to feel what your shoulder blades are doing in baby cobra, baby cobra, because there's so much muscle activation happening through the back. Like there's, it's not maybe a lot of tension that the the back muscles are generating, but like you feel your back, right? So to cue the shoulder blades can sometimes feel like not as obvious as like cueing the chest, right? To sure. broaden across the front of the chest. So basically, when you cue broadening the collarbones, in my mind, what you're cueing is taking the the lateral end of the collarbone away from the manubrium or the top of the breastbone. And to me, what that means is moving 
the collarbones, really retracting the collarbones, right? So, so the collarbones can retract and protract, mm -hmm. just like the shoulder blades. And it, it's the same, like when you protract your shoulder blades, your collarbones protract. When you retract your shoulder blades, your collarbones retract. So when I say broaden across the collarbones, it's actually interestingly the opposite of saying broaden across your shoulder blades. Right. Broaden across your collarbones is move your shoulder blades towards your spine, right? That's what I think of it as. But I feel like broaden across your collarbones again in a, in the yoga world is something that I that, that I have heard teachers giving that cue all the time yes. in every position, including when the arms are overhead. And I'm like broadening your collarbones when your arms are overhead is essentially impossible. In my opinion, does not work very right. well. No, it doesn't. Well, and the thing is, okay, so part of the reason, I don't know why, this is just one that's stuck in my craw. This, I just thought you were going to say stuck in my crotch, and I was like, huh. And you're like, tell me more about that. That's a great expression. <laughs> this one really stuck in my crotch. Um, <laughs> what is a craw? It's actually your throat. Oh. And it's this idea of something getting stuck in your throat. Craw. Like, like, like a, exactly, like a bone, like you're chewing your whatever, and you've got a bone stuck in your throat. It's like a thing that is something irritating you. It's like when you try to say throat, but you've got something in your throat, and it comes out of his like, craw. Exactly. My maybe claw. maybe it has to do with crows. Anyway, I'll, we'll do, we'll link it link in show notes for more information about that. Well, thanks because I'm doing the show notes. Yeah, for this episode, so I've got to figure out where that's something about. No, you just look up where did the word crawl come I from. I might just cut this whole part. No, you will not. <clears throat> but anyway, I don't know why. <laughs> I like threatening Sarah because <laughs> I get pretend upset. <laughs> And pretend blackmaily. I'm like, you, you, you won't. Not. You will not. As if I have anything to do with she, when she, she's at home editing. As she raises her long skinny finger. This is the craw bone that is stuck in my craw. You will not. <laughs> you will not. There's certain expressions. You know the way that we, people have words they don't like, like panty or moist? Oh, God. Right? Yes. Broaden your collarbones, for me, is the equivalent of moist. Like, it's just a phrase that I find abhorrent. And I don't know why. Like, it's got nothing to do with anything. I just, for whatever reason, my brain's stuck on this phrase as problematic. And I think one of the things about it is that I never understood what it was actually telling me to do. Yeah, right? that's a problem. So, yeah, like, you know, if, if you're cueing a room and you're saying broaden your collarbones and half of the room is doing what you think that should look like, but the other half isn't, there's a strong chance it's because they don't know what the fuck you're talking about, right? I and am. so you may have to, like, back it up with some actual language that describes what I mean by broaden your collarbones is see if you can move your shoulders back in space, which yeah. is kind of what you're asking what you're asking to do like to me broaden your collarbones meant could you figure out how to make them longer like laterally at the same time <laughs> yeah i like, got make, you like grow them in length and i was like what yeah like, i, I just you. never i never got it so so fun fact i used to grade or rather evaluate teaching scripts so people would write a long script of themselves like you know what they would say if they were teaching a pose and a lot of people would spell collarbone collarbone <laughs> my collarbones <laughs> Yeah, that's I really got, sweet. I, got, I saw a lot of really interesting spelling. It was, mm. it was cute. My color bones. Do you see now the error of your ways in in demonizing that cute? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the shock on my face. I was like, what? If anyone tells you, like me later today, that you should you should broaden your color bones, my color bones. Do do you are you gonna get as mad now that you understand maybe what like the cues actually like? Now that you understand. Now that now that you've educated. broadened your mind, would you broaden your <laughs> collarbones as well? No, but honestly, in terms of like other teachers, like look, say whatever the hell you want. Like I don't, I'm not gonna be. I mean, contrary to everything I just said, I'm not like gonna be out there being like, 
you shouldn't like come up to a teacher after class. That was very stupid of you to use that cue. The bigger picture around that cue or any other cue is comprehension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If your students don't know what you mean, you need to find a different cue. Yeah, That's all. Also, to to the credit of what you're saying, is like that was really the only thing I knew to say right. in Baby Cobra for a long time. So sometimes we lean hard into the one way that we know how to do something. Absolutely. Until, until we realize there's like many, many other ways that we could be. Until we learn. Right? Exactly. Until we get more experience. And when we're new, when we're brand new, that's a big part of it as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, here, thanks for getting me worked up about that. You're welcome. <laughs> it's fun. It's more fun for me than you, I think. I think so. Right. The next shoulder dogma was one I definitely fell hook, line, and or like I bought hard into this one. Mm. Okay. So that's the idea that we must always aggressively externally rotate our arms oh, sure. to the maximum anytime we take our arms into flexion, which is when we take our arms up overhead. I, so, I had that a lot as okay, well. Okay, great. Yes. So we'll have we'll have some commiserating to do here. Sure. Um, okay, so I'm, I used to teach anatomy for yoga teacher trainings as well. And so I, what I would do to support this bias mm-hmm. was I would talk a lot about where two of the rotator cuff muscles attach the greater tuberosity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's this big bump on the head of the arm bone. And then I would show like, as the arm is moving into flexion, that if you don't externally rotate the arm, that the greater tuberosity will bang into. And it was like this really dramatic moment where everyone was like, everyone's faces went like, Oh no. And like, the, you know, I, I, like I cringed in pain. Suspense. What's it going to bang into? The acromion oh process. Right. So yeah. So the acromion process is this wacky landmark on the shoulder blade that kind of, it. it's, I always wished that I was able to grant myself the wish of shrinking myself down to the size of an ant and then going for a hike on the shoulder blade. Can I interrupt and tell you about a fantastic movie from 1988 called Inner Space? <laughs> Do you know about this movie? Tell me more. This movie stars Dennis Quaid. Back in the day, Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan were actually a romantic couple. And Martin Short mm-hmm. starred in this movie called Inner Space. And the whole movie is about Dennis Quaid as some sort of scientist who has invented a machine that can shrink him and his like little space pod down to the size of like a pill you can swallow. Oh, and then he goes in a body? And he goes in a body. Amazing. And, you know, hijinks ensue, and there's the villains who are like wanting to steal the technology. The germs? No, no, no. <laughs> These are people. Oh. Inside someone's body? No. in the. <laughs> He's the only one inside people's body. You were saying you wished you could shrink yourself down and take a tour of the scapula. Yeah. Because, because it is so weird. Because it's so... The, the geography, the topography, rather, of the scapula is so fascinating. But anyway, if you were to climb up onto the top of someone who's standing upright to the top of their shoulder blade, you could march across this precipice and it would take you away from their neck and then you take like a corner and be walking almost directly facing forward of where they're looking and then you would just fall off a cliff. And that bone, the acromion, is where the collarbone connects. Exactly. At, like a joint that doesn't even like, it's Move barely a joint. Yeah. yeah, right. So. I thought that the greater tuberosity would crash into the acromion process if we didn't maximally externally rotate our arm at all times. And then I started to hear from my students that like their shoulders hurt Mm -hmm. because of how they were cranking their shoulders into this really aggressive position of external rotation in like poses like down dog or 
dolphin or forearm stand, things like that. So I had basically bought into a myth that I think lots of physical therapists are still really attached to, which is the idea of shoulder impingement syndrome. Well, okay. Shoulder impingement syndrome has since been renamed Mm -hmm. subacromial pain. There's been a lot of research showing that people who have shoulder pain and people who don't have shoulder pain, there's no difference in their subacromial space. Um, and in fact, some people who have more subacromial space than others, those, those that that population of people tend to have more shoulder pain. Yeah. So the the amount of space available in the subacromial, so that's underneath that precipice, right? That right. that bony overhang of the acromion process. In between that and the head of the humerus is a lot of musculature, tendon, bursa, like stuff that can theoretically get pinched. And the idea is that it's being pinched when the arm has like dysfunctional movement patterns, the shoulder blades are not moving correctly, whatever it is. But as it turns out, like research just shows that that's not actually the case. Yes, this is a yes and, which is a improv technique. I don't know if you learned improv ever. So I'm gonna say yes and. The yes and is, I don't know any PTs that are obsessed with the amount of external <laughs> rotation mm-hmm. that yoga people have been you know, taught is the amount that you should be doing, right? I don't know any PTs. Fair, fair. I don't know any PTs that are like the only place for the shoulder overhead is end range external rotation. Well, also, we could also add that like when you take your arm up overhead, the shoulder externally, the arm externally rotates. It, it as like can. kind of a natural couple. Ish. Yeah. It doesn't have to. Well, it doesn't have to, but it, but it, it well, if you get out will. of the way, yes. it will. <laughs> if you leave it alone. I think the bottom line of this is like, leave your shoulder the F alone. Leave and it'll, the shoulder alone. Right? Leave, leave Brittany alone. Maybe yeah. that's another t-shirt. Leave shoulder alone. Yeah, leave shoulder alone. Leave shoulder alone. Yeah, and it could be just the shoulder. Just like, shoulder. Crying. Yeah. That, that would be a nice compliment to the winky. The to winky the winking butt. butt is a crying shoulder. Yeah. If anyone's an artist out there who wants to draw uh, bones or body parts with faces of some kinds on them and like would like to uh, be one of our... I don't know why I'm saying one of our, the only contributor to the t-shirts that we actually haven't made yet. Uh, anyway, give us a call. <laughs> what, is our, what is our movement logic phone number? It's uh, 1-800. No, we don't have one yet. No, we don't. 1-800. Email, email, us, email us from our website. Scap motion. No, definitely. Like, I mean, I would love if someone would draw this. I might, I might ask our friend Amanda Tripp to do oh some God, drawings. Amazing. But anyway, my bigger point is about that shoulder... Yes, this idea of like a shoulder impingement syndrome. But I will say when people come into the clinic and they have shoulder pain, it's usually in something that is above 90 degrees. So whether it's flexion or abduction or anywhere in between. And when I say, where do you feel that? They will point exactly to that spot. Well, and well then, so, then that's maybe the reason why it's been renamed subacromial pain. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And again, my, my thing is like, it's got nothing to do with nothing. Nothing's actually banging into anything. Thank you. Because there's a lot of soft tissue in the way, regardless of and what angle of rotation. Along, but along that line, though, yes. is it maybe a little scary to think that something is banging into? It's something? terrifying. Right. You don't want to think that at all. Like right? the, the whole name of the issue is a nocebo, <laughs> like shoulder, shoulder impingement. impingement syndrome. But yeah. it's also, I mean. There's a lot of things that people toss around as shorthand in the P2 world and they don't actually mean it. Like yeah, I know. the ICD-10, which is like where I co- where you put in the codes of like what the issue is. There is shoulder impingement. Sin- like that I know. still exists. I know. Right? It's so still, like th- things are changing, but it's not like everything is just yeah. completely changed. But bigger picture, 
when people are having that pain, I go back to my original thesis, which is something about the way the scapula is moving is not allowing proper movement of the humerus. Perhaps, but that's a very biomechanist way of looking at shoulder pain. And that kind of leaves out the, the psychosocial component it does. as well, and the movement preparation and the history of injury and like all these other things that really are much more likely to point to but pain. Sure. But I add like the shoulder blade might not be moving properly because mm -hmm. they have a ton of tension in their upper Absolutely. back musculature because they're in a massive fight with their partner. Absolutely. You know what and I mean? That's so, a variability issue, right? Like it, their shoulder blades are not moving in all the ways that it. Exactly. And it's to. not loaded in all the way that yeah. it's not. So, so yes, it's a mechanical, but like the tools I have are mechanical, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I can talk about other stuff and I do, and I can get into the psychosocial part mm -hmm. somewhat, but, but when the they come into the The tools clinic, you have are far more than mechanical. Thank you. Yeah. But I mean, Sometimes, like the whole relationship is 100%. not. 100%. I mean, it's not a mechanism. I mean, like the whole relationship is like the psychosocial Very, yes. component right. of therapy, right. right? And then there's also like the way that you language things and like how do you talk to people and like whether or not you're increasing their fear or right. decreasing their fear. Like I would, I would actually argue that physical therapists have fewer um, tools, like mechanistic tools than they do these psychosocial tools and that they're the psychosocial tools are probably underutilized and underexplored for some therapists right yes not for me <laughs> yeah no that's, like, that's what i mean like not for any therapist that i think is good they're all over all of that also sometimes uh you know people get real nervous about their shoulders i will i will describe something in mechanistic terms in order to de-escalate how they're thinking about their shoulder. Good, yeah. Because I'll Kinda say something. Yeah, because I'll be like, look, you raise your arm up, it hurts, you put it back down, it doesn't hurt. So I'm like, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's not, because people will yeah. come in with like nerve pain and okay. they're like, I raise my arm and put it down and now my arm hurts for the rest of the day. Yikes. So some, a lot of time, I'll use, this is totally off topic, but I'll use like a much more dramatic example like that mm -hmm. for someone for whom that is not happening to be like, it could be a lot worse than it is. Right, right. You know, yeah. as a sort of psycho. Yeah. Yeah. tool keeping things in perspective <laughs> exactly exactly yeah you're you're it's not that bad it's not that bad <laughs> it could be way worse yeah so of course because i believe that impingement would happen if we didn't really effort sure. toward external rotation i was cueing that a lot i was micromanaging everybody's shoulders i was going around fixing everyone's shoulders and i think i was definitely causing more problems yeah. than helping and it was really it was really tough for me to let go of the idea that people needed to really effort hard toward external rotation in the overhead position but i did eventually because i didn't realize that there was no like impingement really happening I still thought that that was possible. But then I started to recognize that like everyone's shoulders are shaped different. And so that made a lot of sense to me in terms of like, oh, because the hips are all shaped different, the shoulders are all shaped different, the spine is shaped different, like everyone's different. And so this universal cue of like maximally externally rotate your shoulder is just, that doesn't like track that that cue is gonna work for everyone right. because of the fact that everyone's so different. And I let it go. So did you micromanage as a yoga teacher? I mean, once I also had that idea in my head, mm -hmm. then I did. I didn't learn that sort of maximal external rotation in my Jiva Mukti teacher training, but I did learn a lot of like, when your arms are overhead, you know, bring your shoulders down. So it was like, once you're in that end range position, now it's time to depress your scapula, which doesn't make any anatomical sense, but that was again, like an aesthetic, you know, long neck, long arms reaching, you know, graceful, beautiful, blah, blah, blah. The, that sort of maximal external rotation was honestly something that I learned in yoga tune-up. Mm -hmm. 
It was an interesting counter because it was taught with protraction as the correct placement of your scapula for like a downward facing dog. Mm-hmm. Instead of this shoulders back and down, it was basically the exact opposite. It was like shoulders up and apart, which was a new idea to me. Can I just say, I think there was a lot of cueing of shoulders down when the arms are overhead. In yoga tune-up? Yeah. Yes. So there was also that problem. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't taught consistently. This protraction and upward rotation of the scapula for a down was taught in a down dog as like a sort of safe like a like a shoulder blade pack position like like a the most stable position but it was not taught consistently across all overhead arm positions Mm. but one of the things that i wanted to say as well is that you know you and i were not the only people who jumped on the like tons of external rotation train no god and there were in fact people and i i had i don't know who this came from, but when I was a yoga tune-up teacher and I would go around and teach the different trainings in different locations, in Canada <laughs> specifically, mm-hmm. people were would do, in, when they would raise their hand to ask a question, let me see if I can describe this in a way that makes sense to people watching, instead of the way that you might raise your hand and like your palm is facing towards the teacher, did you ever see this? Mm-mm. I don't know. So instead of that, people would raise their hand <laughs> with their forearm supinated. <laughs> Because supination and external rotation go together. I mean, naturally it co-occur, right? And so then they would raise their arm up with the back of their hand facing towards me. And, and, and I remember seeing that and being like, huh. And I think I did ask somebody eventually, like, what's up with this back of the hand? And I think there was one teacher who would just basically like similar to you and I, who were like external rotation or bust. Like that's the only place when your arm was overhead. I don't think I ever did anything more than just sort of take note and ask like, where did you learn this? In a kind of casual way. And I think I was, you know, I tried to make a non-judgmental noise like, oh. <laughs> that's so ju- non-judgmental. I know, I know, I know. Anyway, so, so I, that is something that I saw as like, that's that like external rotation taken to the nth degree, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and while there might be some value, if we go back to like our, our five questions here, it's like it's trying to solve the problem, number one, of not pinching anything in the subacromial space when it turns out that's not even a thing. Right. Um, also, like impingement's happening all over the body all the time. It's really benign. Like whenever you sit on your knees when they're bent, there's impingement at your knee. The way that I'm sitting right now where my hips are behind me and I'm kind of pinched forward at the hips, there's yeah. soft tissue getting yeah. hit, pinched at the front of my hip joint right now. Yeah. You need, and you know what? Like tissues love to be squeezed. Like your sure. discs love to be squeezed like that's how they drink that's how they imbibe that's how osmosis works so like a sponge like it's okay that things are getting pinched but it's scary to think that they're getting pinched you know well and if the pinch comes with pain uh, yeah absolutely if that's the story that we're telling to explain the pain it makes the pain potentially worse because now there's this whole story about things being pinched um, all right. So uh, does aligning in, in, in terms of externally rotating to the maximum degree achieve the goal of creating more space in subacromial space? No. And also to add to that, like people's arms are probably, if you're getting out of the way of your body's way of patterning movement, like they're already externally rotating. So you don't need to override the amount that it needs to with like all this extra layering of effort. Um, could it, could it, this be though, here's the question, like, could this help, be helpful for some people some of the time? Like, do Absolutely. some people actually need to work a little bit more external rotation when they take their arms up? Uh, well, maybe, I, I would say like, maybe as far as the like taking your arms up part, I would say definitely in terms of just 
internal and external rotation generally might be a movement that they're just not patterning very much. Right on. Not overhead necessarily, but maybe like horizontally or out to the side or all of these other million gabillion mm. places your arms could be. Let's rotate the shoulders. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. But in and out, not just out. Right. Thank right? you. Medial and lateral rotation, yeah. internal and external rotation. Yeah. So that, that comes back to this idea that they're like alignment is not necessarily the solution. Movement. That's right. Variety That's right. is the solution and capacity. Fun fact time. Woo-hoo. I love this word almost as much as I like the word. Hot dog. Curvilinear. Oh, Ooh, I like the flavor <laughs> of a hot dog and the texture. Mm. Um, curvilinear. Such a good word. Scaption. Mm, I love scaption. Scaption's good, right? Do you know the scaption's a West Coast thing? What? Yeah. The Westies made up scaption? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they made it up, but like, I learned scaption in California. That must mean it came from California. Well, I had never heard of it in New York. Oh, so it must have been a Cali thing. That's right. Westies are the besties. That's right. Uh, so scaption is West Coast, cool. best coast. <laughs> scaption is, uh, I, first of all, the name, I, I, I have to do an Instagram post where I like real really nerd out and and do like a whole thing on like scaption this (laughs) okay this would be the post (laughs) it's so good clip number one you know what you have to make this post before this comes out because otherwise someone's gonna steal it scaption this okay clip number one your arms move exclusively forward and up in the sagittal plane okay scaption this now i take my arms out at about a 45 degree angle so if you're standing directly facing the center of a wall with two corners on the left and right side instead of taking your fingertips straight forward toward the wall with your palms parallel to each other you would instead direct your fingertips toward the corners of the room at an angle right and so scaption this it would be kind of halfway between the sagittal and coronal plane it's really coming from the shoulder blade so the shoulder blade can slide as we as we discussed toward the posterior side of the rib cage. It could come around to the more anterior, kind of side anterior side of the rib cage and halfway between that, what we would call like a, is it a 45 degree angle? Well, the angle itself is going to depend because really what you're trying to do is get the curved backside of the scapula to meet the curved backside of the ribs really consistently so that the head of the humerus in the glenohumeral joint is centrated as ideally as possible, right? So for some people, it's going to be farther towards abduction. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's going to be closer to that flexion. Like I've heard it described as like abduction, but then 15 degrees forward. So that's, you know, but it's, there's a, there's a variety. It's based on your own anatomy. Structural variation for the wind. Yeah. Yeah, so scaption this, right? That's great. And it, and you could do another clip where someone's taking their arms purely out and up in the coronal plane or the frontal plane. Scaption this, and they would move their arms 15 degrees. Oh, and it. then you could do a whole bunch of yoga poses, right? Yeah. Where like warrior two is suddenly like looks totally different yeah. because instead of your fingers pointing over your front knee and over your back foot now, all of a sudden your fingers are kind of pointing forward a little bit where you're facing. Yeah. You, do, you could try to do some kind of side plank situation, like maybe using a wall where you right. like tip your whole torso sort of sort of facing the ground and then you're like pressing like mad into the wall. I the love this. Um, yeah. So this is definitely going to be the post for this podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> scaption this. Um, and so scaption's cool. I think scaption's cool for my past as a 
more Iyengar influenced yoga practitioner where I had it in my mind that like everything had to exist along the lines of my yoga mat. Mm. Like everything had to either be facing the front short edge or facing the long edge. And then when I started to break out of that box, Mm -hmm. literally, I found like these more in-between pathways of movement felt so good, probably because I wasn't doing them. Mm -hmm. And also like there's a reason why scaption, like taking your arms over your head through that scaption path. I don't think that's a technical word for it, like scaption. How how would you say like scaptioning? Scaptioning your arms, um, moving through scaption, moving through a scaption. I would call the. I mean, I'm trying to think how. Like in my medical notes, I write scaption, and I, I mean, it's uh, it's something that you see all the time in PT. I w- I think we'd say something like mo- just moving through scaption, and you understand what moving that means through scaption. Yeah, yeah. Um, it felt it felt so much like there's like it felt like it literally wasn't that there was more space. It felt like there was yeah. more space. Well, like another example. So for for. And there's nothing wrong with this, but there's a exercise that people do sometimes where you stand with your back up against the wall and you either bend or you don't bend your arms depending on what you're doing. And then you do like sort of a snow angel with your arms yes. with the back of your hands touching the wall. That's tough. And what, yeah. And the thing like, because, well, what that's doing is taking your arms behind the scaption plane, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, it was always super uncomfortable. It just doesn't feel great on my body to do it. And I always thought, oh, it's it's not a, a it's a wrong slash bad movement because for me to do that, then the head of my humerus moves forward, right? So then it's not staying super centrated, whatever that means, right? But then if you are on the wall but take your arms a little bit forwards, then the scapula rotates around the sides of your body enough that the movement of the arm is feels sort of smoother and easier. It feels mm-hmm. like there's a more natural path for it for me at least, mm-hmm. but. This is the thing, like we we fearmonger positions, but it's like, well, if my arm can go there and mm-hmm. I'm not like one of those crazy contortionist people that's like like obviously sub like disjointing their shoulder and wrapping it around their head backwards, like mm-hmm. oh, have you seen that stuff? It's mm-hmm. it's nuts, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's not that that I'm asking to do. I'm mm-hmm. just saying take your arms back till they touch the wall and maybe that doesn't feel as you know quote unquote natural or whatever well, it's probably going to challenge some of the soft tissues yeah but it's but there's nothing wrong with that challenge no. is my point no in fact there might be a lot right with that yeah term. cool uh all right well we we've talked so far about shoulders back and down we've talked about externally rotating to the maximum degree when taking the arms up overhead next we're going to talk about scapular winging or tilting winging is typically used to mean like the derogatory like sort of like you don't bad you nasty i can see your shoulder blade winging out your back and um <laughs> is that how til- you talk? tilting i think is a more neutral term oh yeah i was totally fear-mongering winging especially in chaturanga i just meant that tone yeah oh yeah that's how it's <laughs> oh my god you guys your shoulder blades are totally winging um this is my voice when i'm not podcasting um i don't know if you know this but neither laurel and i actually talk like that this is how we talk <laughs> You guys, totally bring your arms overhead and like, but drop your shoulders. (laughs) The scapulae, by the way, also fun fact, scapulae is how I've heard the plural of scapula pronounced. And I think it's actually the like really technical, like if we're going to be adhering to the plural of Latin, it's scapulae. Or scapulae. Or scapulae. I like scapulae better. A-E on the end instead of A-S. Yes, it's not scapulas. No, it's not. But I think we could call it scapulas, and thunder would not, or a bolt of lightning would not strike a stone. I mean, you can do it. I'm going to move away in case it does. <laughs> uh, so 
the shoulder blades tilt. That is a normal motion that they can do. And so we don't need to demonize tilting. However, if you see somebody in Chaturanga, this is where I'd really like get all up in arms, pun intended. Oh my God. Someone was doing Chaturanga Dandasana and they would dump their, their, their humeral heads forward and their wingtips of their scapula would come like ping off their back. It's like, stop, call the fire department. And, uh, and, and, you know, and like, we would have this conversation about the alignment of Chaturanga, mm-hmm. right? Well, mm-hmm. like what's wrong with this conversation? There's something really inherently wrong with having a conversation about alignment of the shoulder blades in Chaturanga when someone is clearly not strong enough to, to do it the way that like people want it to look like. <laughs> I, I, okay, sorry. I, this is where there's a lot of, there's a lot of me holding my face in this episode as it turns out. And it's a good thing this is not a visual medium because you just see me with my hands covering my eyes and talking under my hands. But the biggest problem with, with Chaturanga Dandasana is not the position of people's scapula. It's the fact they're not fucking strong enough to do it, and they're being asked to do it over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's it's a version of a push-up. And then posture shamed when they're right. like, when and they're they're like And then somehow and like they're flagging. supposed to. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, ugh, you go. I can't. I know. So Chaturanga issues with like not being able to lower that moving plank down to the ground, you know, we've created a lot of obstacles for ourselves in this pose. One is that we do way too many of them for most people, right? Another is that we insist on the wrists being underneath the elbows and the elbows being, you know, 90 degrees and the elbows being close to the body. And like, there's all these ways that we inhibit like the bigger, stronger muscle of our shoulder shoulders in this in this yoga push up, right? But uh, we're just going to focus on. Maybe we'll do a chaturanga episode. I just but had a horrible <laughs> flashback of the of being taught and also teaching myself that when you're lowering from your plank, you got to actively bring your shoulders forward so that your elbows stay over your wrists. Oh dear God! Yes. Oh right, shifting forward. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So yeah. Oh my God. I'm having like a PTSD moment about we, shifting forward. Yeah. There there's so many ways that we like we took a hard pose and we made it so much harder so much for harder so much harder. Here's for people. like the <laughs> hardest way to do a push up because I'm not going to let you use your chest especially Absolutely. much. So not only are we asking people to do the hardest kind of a push-up, right, where you don't get to use your chest. We're also saying, do not access the muscles that would make this in any way easier because you have to shift your whole body forward in space so that your elbows and your wrists stay vertically aligned. And yeah. it, 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 uh, uh. Yeah. But I used to teach that. Yeah. Oh, I, I yeah. I, did I taught too. that. I practiced it. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a, it's a great way to make sure that you're always going to have something to teach is just make the pose impossible. And therefore everyone's like, I can't, I can't do it. Teach me how. And you're like, right. that's yes. Great. Perfect. That's working. We'll work on it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. We're just going to continue to keep work working on, on it. <laughs> yeah. Just keep working on it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the shoulder blades are winging off the back probably because you lack upper body strength and you probably lack upper body strength because you just haven't been progressively overloading your horizontal push right. or loading your triceps sufficiently under sufficient load over the course of multiple weeks and months to be able to lift your heavy body or or even just lower it with control. Mm-hmm. Like we're not even lifting our body nope. in shadow. We're doing it we're doing an eccentric uh, you know, we're doing an eccentric exercise. Basically, every time you lower from plank to chaturanga and you never press back from chaturanga to plank, you're really doing eccentric strength training. And I'm having a second flashback yeah. about forcing people to then from that vertically aligned elbow over wrist position to then push themselves back up into a plank. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm so sorry. <sighs> Mea culpa. What are some other places you would see scapular winging? 
Not necessarily because someone lacks strength, but can you think of some other oh, sure. poses where the shoulder blades might ping? Yeah, absolutely. Off the back? Any of the bound angle poses, yeah. right? Any of the poses where you're taking your arms behind you, so you're going into extension and then some amount of internal rotation and adduction, because mm -hmm. at some point the idea is your hands are clasping mm -hmm. behind your back. And usually, I mean, when you describe yoga anatomically, it sounds insane, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm like, okay, you're going to clasp your hands behind your back, fine. But also you're going to take one of your legs and stick it in there as well, <laughs> right? Like a bound angle pose or a bound seated, you know, rotated spinal twist pose, whatever, about Mari Chasana, right? It sounds bananas, it right? It does, it does. And, and I actually really love the binds. Um, I have long arms, you yes. know, so it's like not hard for me to right. do binds. Um, if you have shorter arms, like you're just going to feel... It's tough. Or like if you defeated. have... Maybe, maybe you will. Maybe you, hopefully you won't. Or... Like hopefully the teacher's like, why don't you just use a belt? Or you might... This is the thing about these sort of like visually goal-oriented shapes that you're trying to get people to do is if mm -hmm. someone's anatomy does not... Uh, lend itself towards getting there. There, if you don't know to teach, like the goal is not the goal. The goal is improving whatever range of motion you have in all of the directions. Right. The goal is not to clasp your hands together. Yeah, exactly. The goal is to get a good stretch across your shoulder. Exactly. So if you're teaching and you're not telling people that the goal, the goal is not getting your hands clasped. The goal is like you know, improving your scapular movement you might end up having people start to injure themselves in your class because they're going for the goal of the hands clasped, right? And they're working towards that by hook or by crook. So if you're doing this bind, your scapula are, I mean, your shoulder is going through that extension. It's horizontal adduction behind your back, right? It's internal rotation. There's all these movements where your scapula basically just needs to get out of the way mm -hmm. as much as possible, yeah. right? And so if I'm trying to keep it you know, flush, quote unquote, flush against my back. There's no, I can't do that and get my arm behind my back successfully at the same time. I'm going to rip something. And also like, who told you that that's what you're supposed right. to do? It's well, probably somebody fear-mongering winging, right? It's like, yeah. it's like, just don't, or, or to, in all fair, like, let's give benefit of the doubt. Some of the benefits of keeping the shoulder blade more, let's say, like not letting it tilt off the rib cage in that anterior kind of winging fashion would be like now you're going to get more capsular stretch, right? Like you're going to take your glenohumeral joint exclusively, like without so much shoulder blade motion. I know you're testing, but just hold, hold, hold tight with me for a second. Okay. You go, go mukasana. Yes. And you reach your hand mm -hmm. behind you and up your back, like sure. you're trying to like snap your bra together or something. If if you if you simultaneously tried to put the, the wing tip of your shoulder blade closer to your rib cage, Fuck. right? You're maybe gonna feel a lot more sensation at the top front of the shoulder. I feel uh, it down my arm here. Right, and it might be nervy and, and unpleasant, but anyway, well, it's let's... not necessarily wrong to inhibit scapular tilt, especially if you feel like maybe you're gonna get more benefit from the stretch or exercise if you don't tilt the scapula as much because maybe your goal it depends on what your goal is right but it's not correct to think that winging of the scapula is like an inherently bad thing that the scapula are doing now there is something sarah called scapular dyskinesis mm -hmm. okay and that is sometimes confused people confuse winging with this pathology yeah 
that I think we could probably uncouple in people's minds if that is the case. Like if you have this idea that like a winging scapula is predictive of some type of pathology. Can you talk to us about this this real pathology yeah. called scapular dyskinesis? So yeah, scapular dyskinesis or dyskinesia is is basically, if you break down the word, dys is mean like not, right? And kines- kinesiology is the movement, right? So it's basically your scapula is not moving the way it should. The big picture with this is that when you see it, and in order to not make you do all of the work on the show notes, I'll find a video clip for you on YouTube because you can. There's lots of videos that people where people have filmed their patients and they'll have their patients take their arms through abduction or scaption, mm-hmm. and you can watch both of the scapula. They're not doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So one scapula is going through upward rotation and downward rotation, and the other one has either some sort of initial movement delay or a lot of the time it's on the return where it'll just like stop. And then at some later point, it'll like snap all the way down, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just, it means that it's not doing its regular movement properly for whatever reason. And sometimes it's a nerve impingement and sometimes it's, I don't know, some other sort of injury. Sometimes it's a frozen, after having a frozen, there's all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. But the big picture is that compared side to side, one of them is doing something different than the other one. Right on. And so this is probably not something we have to worry about as movement teachers. No, and it's outside of your scope of practice to try and fix it anyway. Way outside. Okay. So don't pathologize normal. Scapular tilt is normal. If if someone has scapular dyskinesia, it's not your job to fix that at all. And it's really definitely not your job to diagnose them with that. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) If there's pain, yeah, refer out maybe. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk now about alignment dogma in everyday life. Because we've spent a lot of time talking about alignment dogma dogma within the context of moving the arm into different positions or being in different positions. But now let's actually talk about posture. Okay. Okay, Like everyday life posture. Um, First of all, to start, Sarah, do you think it's within a yoga teacher, Pilates teacher's strength coach's scope of practice to tell a student or suggest in so many ways that a student has bad posture and then to offer ways to fix it? Well, it's awfully posture shaming. Mm, Yes. But it's also a good way to maintain your revenue. (laughs) Yeah, so, create a problem so you have right? something to solve. If everyone's got bad posture, you're never going to run out of clients. Right. And so a lot of people believe that they have bad posture. And again, mm-hmm. as we discussed, they think it's a moral failing or they think it's related to their pain. And it may, it's definitely not the first one. And it may have nothing to do with a second. But, you know, <sighs> posture is not a diagnosis. Although there is an ICD-10 code called abnormal posture, but I'll u- that I use for someone who has like severe scoliosis. Mm, okay. Having a little bit of like a schlumpy shoulder is not abnormal posture. Mm-hmm. It's just a version of a place you could be. And, you know, it, it's again, uncoupling this idea of there's one alignment that is the right alignment. There's a right, one right place to be and all the rest of the places are wrong places to be, mm-hmm. Right. So if there's only one right place to be, yeah, go for it. Walk around, tell everyone they've got bad posture because they're not in that one right place. Mm -hmm. But that, I mean, a lot of people will say things like, I started doing Pilates and my my posture improved. I'm like, yeah, because your back muscles got stronger, Mm -hmm. because your arms got, and your neck got stronger. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, it's just weakness. Mm -hmm. A lot of time, pain is physical deconditioning, right? So the pain of that posture is that their muscles their body does not have the ability to tolerate 
the position of that load. We could call it movement preparedness sure. as well. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think it's scope of practice? To- no, absolutely not. Yeah. No, I think I think because uh, first of all, it's not it's not in our scope of practice to diagnose anybody with anything. with a problem. Right. So when you problematize someone's posture, not only are you pr- pathologizing normal, you're you're diagnosing. Yeah. Okay. And then the second thing is like. If you can't, di- if you shouldn't diagnose, then you also should not be prescribing because prescribing assumes that you've diagnosed a problem. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, so this is going to fix your problem. Right. right. And the, the thing is, is that actually movement fixes a lot of problems. Yeah. Just moving. So helping people learn to move and keeping people moving and motivated to move and like enjoying movement is fixing a ton of problems. Yeah. The the difference comes when a yoga teacher names the specific problem. And then and names a solution. Names a specific solution for that problem. I think anytime we're doing that, whether it's around mental health of our students, whether it's around any type of pain, whether it's around any type of postural something that they're seeing, I think we're stepping outside of scope of practice. And when we step outside of scope of practice, it could be said for any profession, we get in our own way. We stop really fully being able to help people because we've gone beyond our area of expertise. And now we're kind of just like um, bullshitting. You know what I mean? Like we're making shit up. Ultimately, wouldn't you like to be the kind of teacher who is popular and has a lot of students, not because you've fear mongered all of them into, you know, never leaving your class or else their spine is going to fall out, but instead you are optimistic and positive about the amount of change they could possibly find, the strength and versatility and vitality. You're encouraging a positive outlook on their physical self-expression. Like, let's get you moving in all of the ways and you're going to feel better. Not like everything you're doing is wrong and I'm the only one holding the correctness key. Oh my God. I think that's the kind of movement teacher I want to be. hundred percent. But now I'm going to turn it back onto the PT world. Like, oh, have you noticed there are ideas around bad posture and good pa- posture in the PT world? hundred percent. Okay. hundred um, percent. Do you, do you have any notion of where this idea of, for example, forward shoulder position has been often vilified Mm -hmm. i think in the pt world sure in addition to the yoga world the pilates world oftentimes i've heard physical therapists suggest that shoulder impingement Mm -hmm. comes from forward shoulder posture Right. right so we're tying every all the different like maybe erroneous ideas around pain again connecting them to posture and like these are ideas that that really refused to die. But I think it's, again, I think it's getting better. But can you can you talk at all about upper cross syndrome? Because oh, I, I sure think to, to a large extent, there that this is where this idea about forward shoulder position being bad originated from. So it's, it's basically the theory yeah. for why it's bad and explaining how it happens is laid out in this idea of upper cross syndrome. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is, I mean, I have fully taught upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome before. Well, it is, it is, it was a very popular working model totally. for understanding posture, pain, like back in the sixties. Yeah. So, right? so it started with the, someone named, uh, I believe Dr. Vladimir Yanda. Yanda. This idea of upper crossed, and then there's also this lower crossed, is if you visually, if you took someone and looked at them from the side, so you're looking at like their arm, you know, that, and you drew an X, basically like with the center of the X crossing. So the idea is muscles along each line of the X have some sort of 
either they're working too much or they're not working hard enough. So forward shoulder position is explained as the pecs being in a shortened position. Yep. And the rhomboids on the back being in a perpetually overstretched or lengthened position. Yep. And like, and then also the other part of it is the upper traps being uh-huh. too shortened. And then the other part that I forget, it has to do with like, pe- it's this like the lower traps being too lengthened. Yes. It's all like, this is too long. This is too short. This is too long. This is too short. And it's the muscles as modeling clay. Yes. Theory. <laughs> but listen, to be fair to the theory, humans like patterns. And we look for patterns everywhere. So if you're walking around and you're and you're Yonda in the, you know, it's 1957 or whatever, and you're looking around and you're seeing a lot of people coming to you with like upper back and neck pain or shoulder pain, and you're like, huh, I see a ton of people and like they all their head is forward and their shoulders are rounded. So what might be the pattern? What's the the one commonality? I have a patient who's a medical doctor and we have I get to have a lot of really interesting conversations with him and we were talking about diagnosing things mm-hmm. just generally. And something he said that that they're taught as doc medical doctors is you are taught to look for the one unifying diagnosis that explains all of the symptoms. Mm. So if someone has a headache, there's any number of things that could be. But if they have a headache and they also have swollen feet, and they also have, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find one diagnosis that covers all of those things. You're not trying to say, well, they have migraines and they have diabetes, mm-hmm. right? You're trying to find the one thing. So that is a model that I think a lot of medical professionals go for mm-hmm. in lots of ways, right? Mm-hmm. So this model was developed because it was like, it was this one unifying answer. Right. Yeah. That's it a, took all of these things. That's great context. I mean, it's really easy. Connected to, them. Yeah. It's really easy to take old ideas that were popular that have since been debunked, right? Mm-hmm. There's been a lot more research out kind of showing that upper cross syndrome is no longer a respected theory. Right. Although some people are still adhering to it. Sure. And whether subconsciously or consciously, right? Well, there's still a lot of ideas in the yoga world that like in order to get our shoulders out of that forward shoulder position, we need to strengthen our rhomboids as though like strengthening a muscle shortens it right. perpetually right. and stretching a muscle lengthens it perpetually. Like the muscles as modeling clay theory is right. really, is, is still strong in right. many people. Totally. Um, but the, the, the thing about it is that this guy actually had a really good idea at the time and started making a lot of sense yeah. that had not been made prior to that. And the same thing is just going to keep happening because yeah. science is not about arriving at one conclusion and then sticking with that forever because that is now the law. Science is about being open to changing your mind when new, better evidence presents itself. So it's okay to learn about upper cross syndrome and to understand where people were coming from. In fact, it's probably valuable because then you'll be able to spot the dogma more easily. But upper cross syndrome has been, and I still think is, enormously influential in in guiding people's thought processes toward this really mechanistic muscles is modeling clay way of looking at the body. Like these muscles are short and these muscles are long. And so we have to strengthen the long muscles and stretch the short muscles. So stretch your pecs, strengthen your rhomboids. When like, wouldn't it be great if we just stretch the pecs and the rhomboids and strengthen the pecs and the rhomboids, then we could just have like better tissue capacity and like more movement options. But I wanted to bring it up because I think that this is maybe if there is a route for why we vilify certain postural tendencies i think a lot of them originate in the pt world definitely honestly i believe that a lot of pts still very much not just correlate but causate posture 
and pain. I don't think causate is the way you decline. Cause. Oh, or they just show, they try to show cause. Yes. Not even relationship. Like they, they're the actual like, cause. They assume there's a relationship. Now they're, they've moved straight to the cause. Your pain is because of this posture. Yeah. Right. Um, and that is, that is going to be a, a hard thing to let die. Uh huh. Not least because changes in the world of medicine and academia move at a snail's pace. Mm-hmm. So the kind of thing, like I learned upper cross, lower cross syndrome in PT school in the year of our Lord, 2015, right? It was taught. So, and it probably, there may or may not have been exam, a question on the, on the board exam on, I blacked out for most of the exam process. So I don't remember because it was a nightmare. Every, everyone says that oh, he's taken the exam. Oh. Like I, I know I failed and then they passed. I went and drank f- at least three mar- margaritas afterwards because I was convinced I had failed and I didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> and then three days later, turned out I passed. But yeah, it's a horrible exam to take. I don't remember almost anything except sheer panic, uh, for about four and a half hours. But more to the point, it's taught in PT school. It's in textbooks. It's going to take a long time for that idea to actually shift in the general understanding of posture, yeah. right? In the, in the clinical world, right? Uh, and also, I mean, I will shorthand write things in my uh, notes, my clinical notes, because I know what the insurance will pay for. Mm. Oh, and so there's this is another, this is another point in the episode where I'm gonna start to get really depressed. Yeah. I mean, but the thing is like, I look at that as that's just my, I'm writing these things out because I know insurance will pay for it, but it's got nothing to do with what I know or what I'm teaching the person in yeah. front of me or what we're actually doing. Yeah, you're playing a game. And yes. It's a hundred percent. It's like, a, you're in a massive circus. Yes. Luckily my, it's a cash clinic. So I don't, we don't work directly with insurance companies, yeah. but I want to give my patients the best chance of getting some amount of reimbursement. So yeah. I have to play the game a little bit yeah. when I write my super bills on my notes, but ultimately, you know, shoulder health is maximum appropriate range of motion, maximum appropriate strength in all the ways, period. So simple, right? Couldn't be easier. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode, everybody, and that it's totally cleared up the five-step process to achieving perfect shoulder posture. Oh, tell me about this five-step process. <laughs> I'm excited. Step one, shoulders back and down. Okay. Duh. Step two, rotate, rotate, rotate. Okay. Step three, make some muscles weaker Uh-oh. to balance out the weak muscles on the other side of the joint. Mm. Step four, stop being a bad person and start being a good person because oh. this is the most organic way to stop slouching from within. And step five, never forget broaden across your collarbones. Oh, motherfuck. <laughs> I knew that was coming in. JK! Okay. You can check out our show notes for links to references we mentioned in this podcast. You can also visit the Movement Logic website. You can also get on our mailing list. I will also say this. We give away a lot of free stuff. Oh, God. A and lot people, of free stuff. People really like it. So if you like free stuff, you should get on our mailing list. We also offer massive discounts on our popular tutorials, including the shoulders tutorial. Massively popular shoulders tutorial. So join us on our mailing list and also please help us out. If you like this episode, hit that button, subscribe. You want to go the extra mile? Rate us five stars or, or one. It depends. Whatever you think is appropriate. Can I? Somewhere in between one and five. And then give us a review. I mean, especially, especially if you're going to give us one star, you got to entertain us by telling us why. Yeah, we, no, we want to know why <laughs> so that we can read it on loud and on loud so that we can read it on air. On broadcast. On broadcast. 
See you next week. week.